Welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. How do you get in touch with what you're feeling in the moment? And how do you take that a step further to get in touch with what your partner is feeling? And how do you take that state of being tuned in and turn it into deep intimacy, connection, and, well, hot sex? And can you keep that dance alive with your partner, even if you have children competing for your time and attention? Today, our guest is Dr. Keith Witt, integral psychologist and author of several amazing books, including The Attuned Family, How to Be a Great Parent to Your Kids and a Great Lover to Your Spouse. His popular online course, Loving Completely, just came out at the beginning of 2015 and he often appears with Jeff Saltzman on The Daily Evolver Show. In today's wide-ranging conversation, we get into the practical details of how to practice what Keith calls attunement, and how it can help you resolve conflict, deepen your connection to yourself and your partner, and if you have kids, be a better parent. Keith distills his vast wisdom from years of practice. He's conducted over 55,000 therapy sessions with his clients and he's on the cutting edge of how to take a relationship to new levels of growth, connection, and passion, especially when you're past the honeymoon stage with your partner. We also talk about infidelity, why it's a bad idea, and how to repair when it's occurred. Also, Keith offers a free signed copy of one of his books, Integral Mindfulness, to a lucky listener, so you can download the show guide at neilsatin.com wit, and that's W-I-T-T, or just text the word PASSION to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to qualify. So, we're going to cover a lot of ground, and this episode is a little bit longer than most of our episodes, but stick with it as it's value-packed the whole way through. Dr. Keith Witt, thank you so much for being here with us on Relationship Alive. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Well, um, with all of that, it can sometimes be challenging to know where to dive in, but I think I want to um, let our listeners know that that I found you through your TED Talks, and then I, I moved on and found you know that you had written some amazing books, and the one that I just finished reading is called The Attuned Family, How to Be a Great Parent to Your Kids and a Great Lover to Your Spouse. And I love how you combined the two of those together. Because I think for many of my listeners and for me, that's been a, a juggling act of figuring out how do you how do you step up as a parent, a mother, a father, and how do you still stay in touch with that erotic energy that fuels your relationship? It was designed for that mostly because um, with couples with kids, young kids, that was just such a problem. They would lose each other as lovers. Um, now, that, of course, fits with how we're genetically programmed to bond. Uh, but also, there's an awful lot of other variables that enter into modern relationships. And in modern egalitarian relationships, to a certain extent, the relationship as lovers needs a whole new form of renegotiation when um, partners pass into the intimate bonding stage um, of relationship, and especially after the birth of a first child. And um, research, the person who's done the, the, the research that I like the best on this is John Gottman. And 
Um, I like his research. I, I like him being a scientist, but also I like his research because it, it, his research validates a lot of opinions that I've had and practices that I've been, I've been doing with my clients for the last 20 years. That um, uh, in general, um, without um, readjusting your intimacy and readjusting the level of discourse in a relationship, about 70% of the time, couples are doing a lot worse three years after the birth of a first child. Um, sexuality is compromised. There's more irritability. And there, this gets translated into problems with the child. But couples that do reorganize, couples that um, learn how to, to deal in a more intimate and sophisticated fashion with each other as partners, friends, and lovers, they're doing better three years after the birth of a first child. Um, and the child is doing better. Um, and what Gottman's shown is that a relatively small amount of, of information can turn this statistic around from the 70 doing badly to 70% doing well. And I found that um, in my work also. And the Attuned Family was partly an attempt to put out information into the world that would help um, couples making the transition into parenthood and the transition from romantic infatuation to intimate bonding to make that a positive, a pro-social, and uh, trans. Uh, transformation to help them be better lovers. Um, and we need that. Uh, the modern relationship is the most demanding relationship that's ever existed, really. And it puts a lot of pressure on us to grow, to make it work well. Yeah. Could you talk about that? In um, it, Now you've had over 55,000 therapy sessions with your clients. And can you talk about where? what are the stages of relationship and at what point do people start to have problems? Um, well, first of all, uh, uh, it depends how, how much granularity um, you want to go in, in stages of, of relationship. Uh, well, in your book, you mentioned there were three major stages. Yeah, okay. So well, let, let's start with those. Uh, uh, you meet somebody, uh, you're attracted to them. Some, something about your love map, their lust map fits together and there's an attraction. Um, and so you develop a relationship and they become a special person and that turns into a romantic infatuation. And then romantic infatuation uh, releases um, an awful lot of neurotransmitters, activates uh, particular circuits in your brain that compromise your judgment and makes you tend to be obsessive about this other person, which is fine. You know, you fall in love. And then at, that is genetically programmed to burn out after a period of time, 6 to 18 months. And you enter a stage of intimate bonding where you feel as close as you felt in your family of origin, which on one hand makes the person feel very familiar and connected. On the other hand, um, your, the urgency of your sexuality diminishes. And the defenses that you programmed as a kid in your family of origin you know, that, we're, that we all have programmed, uh, it's the nature of human consciousness to program defensive states, they start coming out and there's more challenges. And since modern relationships uh, are egalitarian, at least in the West, and this is the first time in the history of the world that we've had vast numbers of people that are in relationships where there's equal power around parenting, sexuality, finances, and so on. Um, and this is very challenging. Um, uh, it requires a lot more consciousness to maintain, say, your love affair. It requires more consciousness to um, organize yourself as parents um, um, and to learn and practice modern parenting skills and so on. Um, 
it requires uh, a, a more um, integral interior integration to deal with these forces of less dramatic infatuation and intimate bonding, which are always alive in us. Um, we're genetically programmed to lust after some people being romantically infatuated with another and to be in love and intimate bonded with a third. We're, we, we have the, the programming to have those things happen simultaneously. And you can see from an evolutionary standpoint why that would in, uh, increase people's chances of passing their genes on in primitive hunter-gatherer groups. In modern egalitarian society, as we begin to get deeper and deeper, um, monogamy is required to have um, the kind of intimacy that we want. And it can't just be white-knuckle monogamy where we're just promising <laughs> not to have sex with other people and not taking care of business with each other. It needs to be a juicy monogamy where we're not having sex with other people and we're taking care of our love affair. And that's why I had the subtitle on The Attuned Family, How to Be a Great parent to your kids and a great lover to your spouse. Um, modern parents are so dedicated to being great parents that, that sometimes they tend to lose a sense of responsibility to maintain and enhance the love with each other. And, and children need parents to do that and couples need to do that. And in an emergent family, that the healthy families, that's an organizing principle. And an attuned family, if you're attuned to yourself and your partner and your children, those attunements tend to lead in those directions. And that's why attunement is a central organizing principle and why I uh, wrote that book, um, to organize therapists and people um, around that organizing principle into the wide array of human activities that are involved in work and play and, and, and spiritual practice and parenting kids of different ages and relationships. Yeah. So in our correspondence before this interview, you mentioned how much of your work with people is helping them navigate the different states that they enter in. And in your book, um, and I'm assuming in your practice, that is sort of juggling between attunement and I'd like you to talk a little bit more about what attunement actually is and defensive states that people go into that creates a lack of attunement and a lack of, of connection. So can you draw a quick distinction for our listeners about one versus the other? Yes. Um, first of all, states are states of consciousness are one of the foundations of integral psychology, which I teach and wrote a book about called Waking Up and another called Sessions. We go through different states of consciousness constantly through the day. Um, our nervous system is perceiving the world and then generating states of constant, uh, consciousness instantaneously in about 60 or 70 or 80 milliseconds, tenth of a second. And those states of consciousness have emotions, they have stories, they have impulses. And we can consciously be aware of these states in about a half second to a second and a half if we're paying attention. And these states fall into two general categories. Whether we feel our, our nervous system perceives us as states, as safe. Um, um, this is called neuroception. There's a guy named Stephen Porges who wrote a book called The Polyvagal Theory about this. Um, nervous systems are always perceiving the, the universe and deciding whether we're safe or not. 
if we're safe, our brains go into pro-social states. And human beings are intensely social and relational. Almost our entire brain, except for a narrow little mohawk going down the front, is, de is dedicated to relating to other human beings. That narrow little mohawk frontal cortex, uh, past the hippocampus passing on into, into the back, has to do with our sense of self separate from other people. Everything else is in relationship with other people. And other people includes our different selves, our past, present, and future selves, and, and other people that we imagine. So if we're in a pro-social state, if we perceive the universe as safe, we have access to our, our mature intelligence. We have access to social skills, and we tend to harmonize naturally with other people and with ourselves. Um, this is a natural attunement process that is the gift uh, to all human beings and to human culture and so on. If we perceive, the, if our nervous system perceives the environment as unsafe, as dangerous, it instantiates a defensive state. Now, a defensive state involves um, amplified or numbed emotions, distorted perspectives, destructive impulses, and diminished capacities for empathy and self-reflection. In other words, our brain is preparing ourselves for fight or flight. And to do that, we have to disconnect from other people. And we have to disconnect from our more judicious self because we don't have time for reflection. Fight or flight requires instantaneous reactions. It's, it's our more primitive animal self. Now, even though it's our more primitive animal self, those distorted perspectives are drawing from human intelligence and from our history. And so we come up with these distorted stories about why I should fight with you or why I should run away from you. And couples do this all the time. If you work with couples, anybody who's worked with couples or been a couple knows how that happens. You can go from thinking each other are great to thinking that, you know, that you're horrible and thinking that she understands me and thinks that I'm a good guy. To, she doesn't understand me and she's got this mis. She thinks I'm a jerk, and I, I you know, and I, you know, she was so attractive yeah. ten minutes ago, and she's so repulsive now. How did that happen? You go into these distorted places where you're you're literally preparing yourself for fight or flight. Um, most people are not conscious of these defensive states, um, and and so what they do is indulge them, and and they accelerate quite quickly. Um, and accelerating conflict is one of the most toxic things for, for relationships. If a couple has accelerating con conflict and they're not good at de-escalating it, they tend to divorce on an average of 5.6 years after um, they're married. Um, it's, it's quite toxic. Um, and so noticing a defensive state um, uh, or if, they, if a couple withdraws, you know, they don't fight, they don't have accelerating uh, they don't, you know, fight, but they flee, they shut down and avoid each other, um, that also is, is bad for a relationship. Now, relationships under those circumstances will last longer, but those couples will divorce after an average of 16.2 years. Um, and so catching that defensive state and then regulating that to a state of social engagement is one of the most profound skills that we have as human beings. And one of the best ways to do that is to cultivate the ability to attune to yourself and attune to your partner. Um, and I can describe attunement quite quickly. And, you know, our listeners can practice the, this attunement if they want Great. while I describe it. And this is how you attune. First, you be aware of your breath going in and out of your body. Feel your abdomen go in and out as you breathe. And you want your abdomen to go in and out because breath low down in your body is associated with soothing. It activates your polyvagal system. 
your tenth cranial nerve into your heart and reduces anxiety. And as you're aware of breath going in and out of your abdomen, be, be aware with acceptance and caring intent of the sensations in your body. Are you hot? Are you cold? Um, are you comfortable? Are you uncomfortable? And as you're aware of your breath going in and out of your abdomen and the sensations in your body, be aware of what emotion you have at this moment with acceptance and caring intent. Am I interested? Am I bored? Am I irritated? Um, am I intrigued? Am I ashamed? What emotion am I feeling with acceptance and caring intent? So now as we breathe in and out of our abdomen and we're aware of our sensation and emotion with acceptance and caring intent, what thoughts am I having at this moment? Again, with acceptance and caring intent. Thoughts tend to come and go. Um, images sometimes, ideas, memories or anticipations. What thoughts am I having? I observe those thoughts with acceptance and caring intent. And now as I'm aware of my sensation, my emotion, and my thought, what judgments do I have at this moment about about myself, about others? What judgments do I have about Keith doing this exercise? Or about Neil talking with Keith? Or about myself listening to this podcast? Or about something else? Be aware of my judgments with acceptance and caring intent. And now, as I'm aware of my breath, my sensation, my emotion, my thought, my judgments, with acceptance and caring intent, what do I want? Do I want to know more about attunement? Do I want Keith to move on to the next part of this? Do I have a question? Am I thirsty? Do I want to move around in my seat? What do I want? With acceptance and caring intent. This capacity for self-observation with acceptance and caring intent is attuning to self. Now, how do we tune to others? Well, first, we attune to ourselves, and then we imagine the other person. And it's, this is an imagination exercise. Even though we can be in front of somebody and read their expressions, and we have mirror neurons that give us lots of information about their states of consciousness, including their intent, we're still kind of imagining. So, if you want to attune to me as I talk, just imagine, what's Keith feeling? What's Keith sensing? What's Keith thinking and judging and wanting at this moment with acceptance and caring intent? Hold yourself in that question of what is Keith feeling and thinking and judging and wanting with acceptance and caring intent for Keith. And now you're attuning to me. If you have a partner or a child, you attune to yourself and you attune to them. And in this process, you are activating pro-social circuits in you. Now, if you're in front of somebody or talking to somebody, they have mirror neurons, which are motor neurons in their brain that recapitulate your voice and your attitudes and your thoughts and feelings, and they begin to create a resonance, an inner subjectivity. 
And this, when this is pro-social, this is wonderful. This is delicious. This is what we all love. This is what we're all addicted to. We're all addicted to each other. And we want it. And it only happens when we feel safe. When we feel unsafe, defensive states come in, cuts off my ability to tune to me and my ability to tune to you, and I start having these distorted perspectives and destructive impulses. And then it's my job to attune to myself, attune to you, to reestablish our inner subjectivity, to reestablish this um, pro-social engagement. And then, once that happens, if there's any problem, we can resolve it. And I've found in thousands, tens of thousands of couple sessions that couples try to get back to attunement by arguing about content. And I always tell them, look, you get attuned first, and then the content pretty much takes care of itself, mostly because 69% of most issues couples have are perpetual issues. They're never, ever completely resolved. So what we want to do is just get better and better at dealing with them. How would one get into that state of acceptance and caring intent when they've checked in with themselves and they feel like, wow, I'm really angry at at that Uh person. So I'm really angry. And especially if their patterns of being angry are not essentially um, being accepting or caring directed at the other person. So how would you, how would you help someone move toward being accepting and caring of the other person in one of those moments? Um, so now this is where, so we start with an organizing principle, you know, Mm -hmm. like attunement. And now it starts getting complicated. You know, I remember I, I, I hired a woman to help me write blogs about five years ago and her feedback back. And she said, Keith, you have to stop using that word complicated. She said, you know, don't tell people things are complicated. And I wrote back, I said, look, some things are just fucking complicated. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> and you know that's now we can break it down but it's complicated so let's let's deal with the anger so the first thing is what is this person's meta emotion what is their relationship with anger there are two general approaches to emotion that human beings tend to have they tend to be more emotionally dismissive or dismos- emotionally coaching uh, and the research is overwhelming. Emotional coaching is a superior way of being in relationship and with parenting. And emotional coaching people are people that see emotions as messages, um, opportunities for intimacy, um, and you know they're, they're channels into our unconscious. And anger, if you're an emotionally coaching person, means that you're frustrated. It means that there's something that's not happening that you want to have happening. Um, and... Uh, and if you're an emotionally dismissing person where you think that you can – emotionally dismissing people are kind of suck it up and carry it on people. Um, negative emo- emotion is a choice. Why should I choose negative emotion? I don't want my children to have negative emotion. I don't want my partner to have negative emotion. Um, to that person, um, anger is a burden. Um, it is – it reflects something bad about me or about you and mostly about you because I don't want it to be about me. If someone has an emotionally dismissing attitude – towards anger, then the first order of business is to help them develop an emotionally coaching attitude towards anger. And that means bringing it to their awareness that that they have this particular attitude towards painful emotion that gets in the way of intimacy. Um, 
For instance, children that have emotionally coaching parents who are, who are also able to set boundaries for the children um, when, when necessary, um, those children tend to have higher math and reading scores. They tend to self-soothe better, higher vagal tone, um, more cooperative play with the best friend, do better in school. And these uh, research has shown these, these um, characteristics to be stable through adolescence. It's, it's the superior way to, to, to parent. And couples that do this with each other tend to be happier couples. They have higher intimacy and higher satisfaction, better sex and stuff. And so it's just a superior way to be in relationship. Now, if I, you notice when you go from emotionally dismissing and emotionally co- coaching, and then if you can notice it, then you can go, oh, I'm, I'm in, I'm in a, a, a situation where I'm dismissing my emotion or your emotion, and now I need to look at it as an opportunity for intimacy. So let's say this person has been, we've made that, that move. They're aware of their anger. They go, okay, I'm angry at this person, and now what I need to do is turn this into intimacy. So if I know I am angry and I want to turn it into intimacy, then I want to approach you respectfully and kindly. Um, I don't want to hurt you with my anger, even though anger, of all the painful emotions, is the one that actually draws you towards other people. Um, Shame makes you want to disappear. Fear makes you want to take off. Sadness makes you want to collapse. Anger makes you want to attack somebody. Um, So it's an approach emotion. I mean, that's kind of the good part of anger. Mm. But you you want to approach with kindness. Um, And so if you're approaching somebody with kindness, you go, so I'm mad and I don't want to be mad. And I'm mad about this, and, and so help me with it. And then, I, and then I stop and let the other person tell me what their reaction to that is. Now, if, if I've been trained, if I've trained myself to be effective, after they've told, told me what, whatever it is that, that their part of it is or their, their experience is, my next move, rather than to argue with them, is to tell them what's valid about their perspective. This is um, often irresistible to a partner because if I'm telling you what's valid about your perspective about my anger, then you can go, well, this is what's valid about your anger, Keith. And all of a sudden, we have a conversation where we're going back and forth from what's valid about you to what's valid about me to what's valid about you, which is where you want to go. That's escalating intimacy, and we want escalating intimacy in all our interactions. Um, Generally, this, the, the tendency, and this is the, our primitive tendency, it, happens, it comes from our animal past, with anger is have escalating aggression until somebody gives in. And you can see this with children. You know, some parents say, let them fight it out. You know, that's, that's a horrible um, uh, prescription for children because eight out of nine times when kids fight it out, it ends up with one kid basically dominating and bullying the other kid or one kid taking off. Mm. Okay, we don't want conflicts to end like this, and we don't want to teach children to have conflicts. You know, my parents were both public school teachers who were raised in the Depression, and basically that was their thing. You know, they said, you know, if a kid punches you on the playground, you're supposed to punch them harder. Okay, no, that's really not a good advice. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I had two brothers. Uh, th- that wasn't good advice to us, uh, and we eventually all all took care of that, but... So our animal self wants us to dominate out of anger. And so we need to kind of take it to that next level, Um, the same level that I was talking about that we need in modern relationships of deeper consciousness to say, I want to have escalating intimacy out of my anger. And I I need to recruit you in helping me to not be mad at you because that's what I want. I want to feel affection towards you. I don't want to feel anger towards you. Um, Yeah, so... Uh, quick question about that. 
Um, sometimes uh, people are actually listening to this together. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from couples who are listening together and clients who have been listening together. And so they benefit together from these kinds of conversations. However, most people are listening on their own. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if I'm, if I'm on my own and I'm like, oh, I'm so inspired. I'm going to attune to myself next time I'm in conflict with my partner. And I attune and my partner is just like, they're hammering on the negative state. Like I can't, like I'm feeling into them and I'm feeling just how angry and pessimistic and, or, or sad and withdrawn or despairing or whatever it is that's going on with them. And, and I, I feel like I can't bring them out of it. Mm -hmm. How do I, I mean, I liked the, the, I like the idea that, the the mirror neurons in my partner are eventually going to resonate with what I'm what I'm experiencing and and hopefully that helps recruit them over to my state. But how do you keep it from going the other way where just you get pulled down the black hole of despair or negative or defensive states? Well, first of all, you'll notice and anybody who's listening, remember the last fight that you had how much eye contact were you having with the other person? And you'll notice most of the time, not very much. It's very hard to look somebody that you care about in the eyes and hurt them. And so if we want to hurt them, we kind of have to look off into the distance and say cruel things. And if they want to hurt us, they kind of have to look off into the distance and say cruel things too. And so just one thing is if I'm maintaining a position of wanting us to get back to love, I kind of want to catch your eyes. Because you're going to have a harder time hurting me if I'm looking in your eyes trying to get back to love and you're trying to hurt me. And you see this with kids too. Kids don't realize it when they're upset. But if they're upset and they're mad, they're unconsciously holding on to their angry story. And they'll avoid eye contact because they know if they look in the eyes of a loving parent, they're going to lose some of their angry edge. They don't want to lose their angry edge. They want to hold on to their angry edge. Um, there's just a just little... Little little, uh, little tip. <laughs> um, and here's the, the second thing about it. Um, if, if my partner gets so plugged in that they can't get back to love, or if I get so plugged in that I can't get back to love, let's go ask somebody for help. Let's ask a therapist or a coach or somebody to help us. And this is why uh, hunter-gatherer tribes, the ones that we've studied, have less psychopathology than um, Westerners. You have a whole tribe regulating people. Mm. And, you know, we're so used, you know, particularly in individualistic America. I got to solve it on my own and, or we got to solve it on our own, all this, this kind of stuff. You know, if we're not very good at getting back to loving a thing, let's get, find somebody, you know, a therapist and let, have them help us. Um, a lot of this stuff is basic learning. There, there's just, to, you know, a lot of it is mechanics. Yeah. And you know, you don't. You don't learn how to play tennis by getting a tennis racket and a ball and getting up on the getting out on the court and just whacking at each other. You have somebody teach you how to hold a racket and you know and how to hit the ball and how to keep your eye on it and that kind of stuff. Well, intimacy is the same thing and sexuality is the same thing. And you know we've learned a lot by observing people, you know, and we've absorbed social nuance and so on. But there's an awful lot of us that have not observed people moving from anger to love effectively. And, and there's hardly anybody that's observed people, you know, moving from interest and attraction into robust and enduring sexuality because in America, that's kept hidden. 
You know, you know, there's, you know, you know, in every single one of my books, except for the last one on integral mindfulness, I had one part where there were a couple of kids of some age, you know, four, five, eight, nine, eleven, whatever, engaged in age-appropriate sexual play, being discovered by a good adult who supports them in their developing sexuality rather than gives them shit about it. Um, and that was by design. I wanted to provide a conversation, at least, in the culture for, you know, we have to be able to talk about things and we have to be able to examine the healthy and unhealthy aspects of things to help each other and our children grow. And that's true for conflict also. Um, and, you know, conflict is important in relationships. Anger is important in relationships. Um, it, it lets us know what's important to us, what hurts us, what doesn't hurt us. Um, it, it lets us know what's not, what's missing. It needs to be taken seriously and respected, but just like any other tool. I mean, it's, you know, a knife is a tool. So you put it in your hand, you deal with it respectfully and learn how to deal with it respectfully and use it uh, constructively, and it's great. Um, if not, you cut yourself. And that's what's true about the painful emotions, particularly anger, but that's also true for shame. It's true for fear. It's true for sadness and grief. Um, you know, we need to learn how to, to access them and to process them in ways that support our development and the development of the people we love. Right. And what's so great in partnership is that you have those constant opportunities if you're growth oriented with your partner to reflect back at them something and to, to have your partner actually facilitate your growth and your, your transition from that negative defensive state um, to something where you're actually building intimacy and growing past it. Exactly. That's a tantric process in the sense of um, the tantric tradition in Tibetan Buddhism. In American, we tend to, uh, uh, to uh, associate tantra with just sexuality. But the tantric tradition is, is way bigger than that. The tantric tradition is finding God in every bit of manifest reality, and especially in relationship with other people. Um, and so the modern relationship is tantric in the sense that we can help each other grow towards unity with spirit. Um, and that's the promise of the, the modern relationship. And that's why monogamy becomes a requirement of modern intimacy. Um, yeah, we're, we're physiologically and genetically wired to be able to have um, multiple sexual partners, secret affairs, or that kind of stuff. But if we want to have a relationship of that deepening trust and deepening guidance back and forth, it really requires a monogamous commitment with another person. Um, and in that commitment, if I'm committed to helping you be your best self and you're committed to helping me be my best self, that accelerates our development. And that's what the great relationships are. My wife Becky and I have been together for 42 years, and every single one of those years has been better than the one before. And I'm, you know, blessed to have found a woman by, by just good luck, probably as well as other things, and uh, that was willing to take that journey with me. And she feels the same way about me. Um, and so that's what we want in our relationships. That's what we want to grow towards. And we're not we're programmed to to do that in some ways in this culture, and we're programmed to not do that in some ways in this culture. And those, that's the challenge of development on our psychosocial and psychosexual lines of development. Right. It seems as though we are aspiring to this thing. And I like how you articulated a vision for relationship because I think that's one thing that is often lacking 
in modern couples is that they don't they know they don't really want what their parents had or their grandparents had or or even what their neighbor has but they're not entirely clear on what that means what are we actually striving for other than just like well we're not having enough sex so how do we have better sex or um we want to raise happy children or you know you can identify little components of it but to encapsulate it that way is um I think really important for people who need to have something to strive for. I, I agree. Um, my book, Integral Mindfulness, was basically designed to give um, um, uh, an overview of of a, of a full life of development and engagement. Um, the inner, the mindfulness part is is the attunement that I described earlier. The integral part is. Um, uh, integral uh, uh, philosophy and teaching uh, as, as um, described by Ken Wilber in many, many, many of his books. Integral psychology being one of them. Sex ecology and spirituality being another. Is that you can, at any given moment, if you look at that moment from, from a, a variety of perspectives, you have the big, the, the largest the most complete understanding of yourself and of your environment in that moment. And those perspectives are seeing individuals and groups from both the inside and the outside. Um, in other words, seeing you and me talking as if we're a couple of, we, can, we were doing a transcription of it, or seeing you and me talking from your subjective experience, your inside and my inside. Um, that's a we space, and then, but also individually in you, there's an I space. So those, in, in integral, we call those the quadrants. But also looking from people what, what types of people they are. Um, we're more masculine or more feminine, for instance, or more introverted or more extroverted. Also looking at what states of consciousness we're in. Um, because it matters, as I mentioned earlier, about whether we're in a state of social engagement or a defensive state especially. But there's lots and lots of other kinds of states, for instance, transcendent states that we get from spiritual practice. Um, and also looking at what developmental levels we are in different developmental lines. Um, uh, developmental levels, let's say in spiritual practice, um, you can have a peak experience of, say, unity with God um, when you do certain practices. But that's not a stable um, um, stage experience until you've done it enough times where basically in the back of your mind, there's always a hum of unity with God. Well, that's kind of true in almost every area of human development. In relationship, I can have a peak experience, and a lot of people do in therapy, for instance, of feeling really connected and safe and loving with my partner. But I have to have lots and lots of those, and I have to adjust from distress into those many, 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 many times before I have that background hum of I am safe and connected with my partner. Um, uh, this is true for – you can see it most with physical stuff. You know, like uh, I learned how to tap dance once. I, th I got tired of martial arts. They were too serious. So I wanted to be a tap dancer. <laughs> so I walked into a tap dance studio and hired this woman to teach me half hour each, each week. And I practiced like a maniac. And nine years later, I was a pretty good tap dancer. And I started out and I looked like Lurch in a pair of tap shoes, you know, like a clumsy oaf. And then gradually I got less clumsy oafish and I got a little bit more Fred Astaire-ish. I mean, I never made it there. But, <laughs> but, you, you can, but it was really easy to see how what was awkward and, and impossible for me in year one was very possible for me in year two and so on. We can see this in physical 
um, development, um, skill development. This is also true in psychological development, um, in emotional development, in relational and sexual development. Um, and so we get good input from other people and from other sources. We practice it and embody it. And if it's interpersonal, we do it with each other, like dancing. And you know, you could take you and your wife can go and take a dance class and feel very clumsy the first dance class, and then ten dance classes later, you feel really graceful. You've received expert uh, input. You've cooperated with each other. You've practiced, and you've gotten to be better at dancing. Well, almost all form of relationship is dancing. And so that's what we all want to do. We all instinctively want to do. Um, when it goes bad, we blame our partner, which is a problem. <laughs> and so we kind of got to get over that and kind of look for our part of it when it goes bad and then help our partner deal with their part of it. Yeah, I, and I like also the, the idea that you go home and you, you're, you've decided, I'm going to try to attune in this moment. This is like, oh, here's one of those moments happening again, and I'm going to attune right now. And maybe it doesn't go so well the first time or the second time or the third time, but through practice and, and over time getting used to that totally different way of being, you may experience something totally different a month or two down the road. Exactly. Yeah. I'm curious if you can talk now about getting back to the sense of attunement. How does that tie in to polarity and keeping desire and, and erotic energy and, and deeper and deeper intimacy and expanding that, that definition of intimacy into the whole gamut of intimacy, not just having intercourse you know, on a Friday night kind of thing. Uh -huh. how, how are those related? How does, how does one turn attunement, which sounds very um, connecting, into something that creates spark and playfulness and, and the desire to connect even more deeply? Um, uh, well, let me start with, with an interesting study. Uh, there was a study done on, uh, John Gottman did this study on, I think, or one of his students, on what, what were the couples that were sexually conflicted or the, or the couples that had self-reported plenty of sex, you know, were happy sexually. He found one characteristic that I found fascinating. It was that when one person approached the other person and the other person said no, that the person responded to that no with a positive emotion. Oh, that's fine. I love you anyway. Let's just cuddle tonight. You know, we can do it some other time, something like that. He found that couples that had that characteristic had plenty of sex. Couples that didn't have that characteristic tended to separate from each other. Now, once again, that, that one characteristic um, is the tip of a huge pyramid of eroticism, sexuality, and, and programming. Um, but, but how does that happen? Why did that happen? Um, so let's go back a little bit to types. Most of us in the sexual occasion are either more masculine or more feminine. Usually the guy is more masculine. Usually the woman is more feminine. But not always. And this is true in gay relationships also in the sexual occasion, though there's more fluidity shifting from the masculine and feminine role. Because to have an erotic spark, you need somebody in the masculine pole, pole, pole 
somebody in the feminine pole, you know, like uh, the David Data, the person I first discovered this with about 20 years ago, his metaphor was a battery. You know, you got the positive pole, you got the negative pole, you put them together and wham, there's a spark. Put two positives together, nah, not much spark. Two negatives, not much spark. Okay, and so that's a dance. Now, if you're in a culture where the dance is the guy, you know, now historically because men are bigger and stronger than women, like most primates, um, in when the guy's bigger and stronger, you know, sex happens when the guy wants to have sex. Um, human beings, unlike any other primate, are theoretically sexually available 100% of the time. Now, the, the, the reason for this from an evolutionary standpoint goes back to where monogamy developed when, when we became we came down out of the trees and, and we needed pair bonding for women to be protected. You know, with a small child, a, a woman out on the plains is completely vulnerable unless she has somebody who's really looking out for her. And the biggest bond is the sexual bond, and so the pair bond um, uh, developed out of that in ways with humans that you don't see in other uh, animals. At least monog monogamy. You see it in gorillas, with, but it's one gorilla and a lot of females. So you got that masculine and that feminine. So on the sexual occasion, you know, somebody needs to activate their masculine, somebody needs to activate their feminine and kind of stay activated. And the masculine sources themselves in emptiness. They're the leader in the dance. You can't have two. If you try to dance with somebody and you're both trying to lead, you fall all over each other. And if you, if you haven't dancing with each other, you're both trying to follow, you fall all over each other. Same way with sex. So in sex, somebody's got to be a leader, somebody has to be a follower. Now, sometimes they switch roles. Sometimes the, the follower starts being the leader, and the leader becomes a follower. And then this sophisticated lovers can do this back and forth. But they understand instinctively, intuitively, and sometimes explicitly, somebody's being the leader, somebody's being the follower. I'm shifting from acting and evoking pleasure in you to receiving your attention with my pleasure. Generally, the masculine gets off on the pleasure of the feminine partner. Men tend to get off on feminine pleasure. Um, husbands complain bitterly if their wives, for instance, don't make sounds or expressions of pleasure during lovemaking because they can't navigate them. Um, women will complain about a guy kind of getting into his own pleasure and losing contact with her um, so that you know she kind of has to watch out for herself rather than having him watch out for her. And so that masculine-feminine polarity um, worked between two people becomes art, and that's the art of lovemaking. Um, and that's in the sexual occasion. Now, in a modern relationship, we have all kinds of roles, and sometimes you're not always in. the. the my wife is the bookkeeper of our family. And so when it comes to finances or bookkeeping, she's in the more masculine role, I'm in the more feminine role. That's fine. You know, I surrendered her direction under those circumstances. Um, same way with gardening. She's better at it than me. You know, I, I, but then when it comes to certain psychological things or emotional things or other things, she's uh, allows herself to, be, to receive direction from me and so on. Now, on the sexual occasion, there's a couple of things. One, a couple needs to have a commitment to mutual fulfillment. Um, mutual fulfillment means that if I stopped either one of you on the street and said, are you both fulfilled in your lover relationship? 80% of the time you go, yeah, I'm fulfilled and my, my wife's fulfilled or yeah, I'm fulfilled and my husband's fulfilled. If, if it's less than 80%, you know, if more than 20% of the time you go, no, I don't, I'm not that fulfilled or she's not that particularly fulfilled or he's not that, that's a problem. Mm. You know, and so you need to adjust that percentage so that it goes, you know, towards that 80%. 
And you do that by being very interested in what helps your partner be fulfilled, being very interested in what helps you be fulfilled, and also understanding the difference between not just the masculine and feminine eroticism, but between male and female eroticism. Um, uh, women's eroticism is different than male's eroticism. Men's eroticism is different. We're genetically programmed to be different. Um, what gets us off is different. Um, the sense organs that um, affect us are different. And it's useful to know about that stuff and to incorporate that into a fulfilling lover relationship. And you're not going to have a fulfilling lover relationship if you don't feel safe and connected with each other in the larger context and appreciated by each other in the larger context of your relationship. And that means you need a relationship that has a hell of a lot more yeses than noes, a hell of a lot more positive affect than negative affect. And so the lover relationship then, sp then spills out into the larger intimacy. And you're not going to have that larger intimacy work unless you both generally agree about how you're parenting your children. Um, uh, uh, one partner being emotionally dismissive with children and the other partner being emotionally coaching with children predicts divorce with 80% uh, um, accuracy. You know, it's a devastating thing to couples. Wow. And so you, you kind of have to be in tune that way. And so there's all these pieces that have to be in place. Female sexuality is very contextual. And so if the context is suspect, uh, a feminine person feels less safe the feminine person being the receptive person in lovemaking needs to feel safe. She needs to experience her partner as a trustable presence. And if she doesn't, she's less likely to cooperate in the dance of eroticism. The masculine person, on the other hand, needs to feel like his feminine partner wants to shine her erotic light at him. You know, he needs to feel that glow. He needs to feel it directed at him. He needs to feel her lighting up in response to his attention. Malison Armstrong, um, one of my favorite teachers of feminine stuff, says that, that, that we all have accountabilities in our relationships. And she says that accountabilities vary in terms of how much appreciation and recognition we get. And so you give your, your feminine partner a lot of appreciation and recognition. The accountability that she feels around you being fulfilled erotically tends to be a lot easier for her. And so this is how it all spreads out and it's how it's all connected. And, and so in men, for instance, tend to be more visual erotically. This is hard for women. She's getting ready. She's getting dressed to go to work in the morning. He sees her naked and wants to have sex. He goes, I want you right now. She goes, what do you mean you want me right now? You got 10 minutes and so on. Uh, well, she needs to understand he's visually erotic. So she, so she can respond. Remember, you want to have the no with the positive. She can respond in a playful way, and he can say, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we can connect later on. And then they're not injured. There's not a rupture from that. If she goes, you know, what kind of jerk are you to want to have sex before I go to work, you know? He feels shut down. In some couples, when one partner was shut down once with a sexual overture, one time, they stopped making sexual overtures. And since... With women in intimate bonding, they shift from desire leading to arousal, which happens in romantic infatuation, to arousal leading desire. If that guy stops making overtures, they stop having sex. Um, and then they forget about it. Because sex is such an altered state, people tend to forget about it when they don't do it. And, you know, sometimes couples have come, you know, we don't fight much, they'll say, or you know, so on. I go, what, what, when's the last time you made love? And they'll go, well, a year ago, two years ago. Like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. They lost each other. Yeah. And I'll tell them, you know, I want you to find each other as lovers again and I'll help you do it. But, you know, you both are going to have to make some efforts here. Um, 
it's it's interesting what you just said. It's relates to a lot of the past episodes that we've actually had in the show because we we talked to John Gottman about that how you you have to be able to say no in order to get to yes and staying really positive. And um and then I'm also thinking about our last episode with um Wendy Maltz, although at the time that this airs it may not be our very last episode, but um where we were talking about um the the consequences of having experienced any sort of trauma and and that creates a really difficult dance for partners around who's initiating because you know you initiate and you have one partner who's a little shut down for some reason and they say no and i mean you just kind of hit the nail on the head with with the the potential that for some partners all it takes is one rejection or what they perceive as a rejection to to stop the initiation and and that undercuts the whole cycle of um of erotic energy yeah john, john godman is my favorite um couples researcher in the world um just finished his book presimpia amores and loved it i'm going to write him a letter telling him how appreciative i am f- for him doing his work and writing that and she's right about when he's right about trauma um now what we have to do with trauma is be responsible for it. Okay. Yeah. I mean I mean you know most of us have all of us have issues that need to be resolved as we proceed through adult development. And sometimes we'll have traumas and often we have sexual traumas. 10% of men and 20% of women have sexual trauma. I mean it's it's epidemic in our culture. And often that sexual trauma severely impacts your our capacity to bond sexually with our partners. And so that's that's fine if we take responsibility for it and say, okay, I'm gonna resolve that trauma and be able to have a joyful eroticism with my partner. What you never ever want to do with a partner, ever, is say, well, I can't love you in a particular way, or I can't be kind to you in a particular way because of my my trauma history, get used to it. Um relationships tend to deteriorate under those circumstances. And that actually is a form of emotional coercion um, that um, creates distance and resentment. Right. That gets back to what you were saying earlier about how there needs to be this mutual agreement that you want to bring out the best in each other and that you want to foster each other's sexual if we're talking about sex, there's your sexual polarity or being the best lover that you can be and really showing sure. up for each other that way. Yeah. You know, uh, Ed Tronic, uh, the, the famous infant researcher on the East Coast, found that in, with secure kids and mothers, they, they were disc- miscoordinated 70% of the time. But the mothers that had secure infants noticed the miscoordination and then attuned to the child until there was a connection again. And then there was a miscoordination. They attuned and there was a connection. And that process of noticing it and then attuning, noticing it and then attuning, noticing and attuning, created secure kids. Um, uh, um, uh, emotionally fo- focused um, uh, therapy, uh, that's it's based on the, uh, the whole concept of creating a secure uh, base around that. And now, I think that there's some limitations. There's, there's other things going on. But that, that sense of security runs off of, okay, there's a disconnection. Let's create a connection. And part of that has to be, um, if you're lovers, it has to be around how are we going to arrange to feel sexually fulfilled um, with each other when we're, we're different. We're man, we're man and woman. Um, 
uh, it's rare that, that one person wants the same frequency as another person throughout the lifespan. With almost every relationship, at some point or another, how you talk to each other, how you make love to each other, how you parent, how you deal with your bodies or with stuff, has to become an object of conscious attention where you need to grow somewhat to be able to stay connected. Um, this is a challenge of the, going through the life stages with one person. Um, um, and if we miss one of the challenges, it tends to separate us and create conflict. And then out of that comes, you know, disconnections, affairs, separations, um, lack of satisfaction, you know, the kind of suffering that is endemic and epidemic in uh, modern society. So there are two things that I want to touch on here. One is I'm thinking back to some of the descriptions in your book, The Attuned Family, mm -hmm. on... Um, people attuning to each other in a moment of conflict and then how you guide them into noticing the, the masculine and feminine polarities in those moments so that it seems to, to add that, that bit of spark to an attuned moment. So uh -huh. if you could talk about that for a moment, I'll save my other question for after that. All right. So a um, couple starts a fight. Okay. And, you know, he says he criticizes her. Yeah, you know, you're too easy on the kids. And she goes, what the fuck do you mean I'm too easy on the kids? She starts getting in his face and he starts arguing. So, so I'll stop him. You know, if you do couples work, I mean, about, I'd say, 35% of my sessions are couple sessions. If you do couple sessions, you have to be interrupting people all the time. <laughs> just, right. just interrupt, 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 interrupt. So I interrupt and I go, you know, how did you feel when he said that? You're too easy on the kids. She said, well, it hurt my feelings. I said, well, tell him it hurts your feelings. And she said, well, it hurts my feelings when you say that. And he softens. And I go, so this is what happens with the masculine. You hit the masculine with anger, he'll start relating to you like another guy and start debating with you. You let him know that it hurt my feelings or I feel sad. You know, you show him your feminine heart and he tends to soften. And I'll turn to him and I'll say, you notice that? And he'll go, yeah. I say, you know, you, you notice how you were letting yourself be mean to her when she started getting mad? Yeah, I noticed that. Um, and you noticed your tone? Well, I, I, never, I would never hit her. I've, I've heard this so many times. And I go, yeah, physically. But you go over a certain threshold and you start hurting her with your tone. You start hurting her with your references. Those are blows. Those are psychic blows. You know, you're essentially bullying her. Is that what you want to do? No, I don't want to be bullied. I go, well... Then, you know, if, if you don't notice that tone, she'll notice it. And, and if you don't notice it, you'll notice it in the injury you see on her face. So you have a job to notice that and to regulate yourself below that threshold. And that's your job. She says, well, how can I when she's in my face and complaining a lot? So I look over here and say, what's valid about that? She says, well, yeah, I complain and stuff. And I'll go, you know, a guy can listen to you talk about what you're excited about for a long time, but he can listen to you complaining for about 10 seconds before he shuts down. Have you ever noticed that about guys? And she'll say, yeah. Okay, so we're beginning to, to, to have her find her feminine power and him, his masculine power. You know, I'll let him know you're not, you, she can't trust you when you're being mean. And, she, you know, you're the masculine person. You need to be trustable. So, you know, get trustable and be trustable is kind and present. And if he doesn't know how to do it, I'll show him how to do it and have him practice it. You know, and, and, and you know, he needs you open to him. When he's being his best self, you need to enjoy it. You know, because women will get mad and will cut themselves off. He'll get excellent and she'll still be cut off. I'll say, if he gets excellent, you need to notice it and feel good. If you're not feeling any pleasure at him being excellent, then you're losing your anger to cut him off. 
So you need to, if he's being excellent, you need to kind of focus on it until you feel a little pleasure. And I'll help her do that until she feels, feel the pleasure, feel a little bit of it. She'll go, yeah. And I'll go look at him in the eye now. And I'll say, do you feel her pleasure? And he'll go, yeah. And I go, okay. So that's that little golden moment. That's where you guys have to get to. That's more important than the content. 69% of all couples issues are perpetual issues. You'll never resolve them completely. These golden moments are the place you have to adjust to. And you both have responsibilities. Now, how does that translate into lovemaking? Translates into what kind, what lights her up as a feminine person. Now, you know, now we can get into a whole cause of things. You know, there's, women tend to have six different kinds of sexual fantasies and three different kinds of eroticism. Women have a lot of variability in eroticism. Guys kind of tend to have the I see or I want or eroticism. But, you know, they have a lot of other things that get them off. And most people are embarrassed about what gets them off because we all know that we're not this cultural standard because there's not one person I've ever met that hits the, the, the top of the bell curve of this cultural standard because we're all unique. So then people have to kind of explore who they are erotically. And just because you like something doesn't mean your partner has to do it, but, but they need to respect it. Just because you want something doesn't mean your partner has to offer it, but they, they need to respect it. And so we go, and you need to respect it. Sometimes people, you know, women, and well, for instance, 70% of women have had a ravish me fantasy. The right guy at the right time just takes me. Okay, there's actual, there's actual heart, dedicated circuits in women's brains that when they're feeling overwhelmed physically will go into sexual arousal. This is based in uh, a genetic imperative in that women that were raped, you know, two million years ago, um, if they went into a sexual arousal cycle, were less likely to get injured in infections and thus die. Fast forward where to the humans now where we turn all the drives into art. You know, a woman likes the sense of being overwhelmed with the right guy at the right time in the right way. Okay, a ravishment fantasy. So women understanding what I just said feels less guilty about a ravishment fantasy. And I can help her guy who might be a nice guy who feels embarrassed about ravishing his partner learn how to ravish her in a way that works for him and works for her. And when they finally get it right, I go, okay, how did that feel? And they go, wow, that was pretty great. I go, okay, now make that a practice. And this is why married couples need to have premeditated sex. You need to plan it. You know, people get married and they'll stop planning sex. What the fuck? I mean, they planned sex when they were in love with each other, <laughs> planned sex when they were lovers, and then they get married and now they just think it's going to take care of itself. No, it's not. You know, so, I, you know, I don't care if it's every Wednesday morning and Sunday afternoon. It doesn't really matter as long as you, you have a time that's set aside for you guys to be lovers with each other. And you can do it spontaneously too, but you need to have a foundation of practice. Otherwise, you just lo you lose the capacities to, to, to the dance with each other, and that makes other people a little bit more interesting, which is dangerous. There's a lot of other people around there. Yeah, so that brought me, brings us to what my second question was, which is um, it's a combination of the how do we repair and rebuild trust, and and you've dipped slowly a couple times into the question of affairs and infidelity and and the potential for that erotic energy to suddenly jump outside of the relationship. So I'm going to, for the moment, put a box around that conversation because we could have a whole episode to talk about infidelity. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and maybe we will because I think that would be a great topic to address. For the moment, though, I'd like to to keep it in the vein of people really connecting with each other. And let's assume that like, wow, some like egregious offense like that happened. How do we pull that back into growth and attunement and repair in, in a relationship and rebuild that trust? 
Um, well, first of all, I, I've had a manuscript that hasn't found a home for about the last three years. That's you know it's complete, but I just couldn't find a publisher who was interested, which surprised me. And it's called "100 Reasons to Not Have a Secret Affair." And when I wrote that book, I was I was what was interesting to me is I really had to work to keep it to a hundred. You know, I had to condense some <laughs> secret affairs. You are, mean there are more than a hundred reasons? Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> secret affairs are just, you know, toxic. Uh, and so yeah. hundred reasons that I have a secret affair. Someday perhaps that book will, will, will make it into the world. Maybe I'll publish it on my, my website now that I'm thinking about, it. but anyway, let's talk about, um, uh, attachment injuries. Let's talk about recovering from a, a re regrettable incident, as Paul Ekman calls it, and John Gottman calls it. Let's call it uh, recovering from sexual betrayal. Um, first of all, 70% of couples where somebody's cheated um, come back together and work towards reestablishing their relationship. So um, it's not, there, uh, there's, there are affairs that are what are called exit affairs. Or someone just can't find a way out of a relationship where they're profoundly unhappy, and they'll have an affair, and that'll be their 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 ticket out of the relationship. And you find that out because as you pro as you process the affair, you know somebody goes, you know, I don't want to stay, whatever, with this person, and the affair became a vehicle for that person to end a relationship that they wanted to end. But that's not the majority at all. You know, seventy percent of people want to get back connected with each other. And uh, you know, one of the reasons I wrote. 100 reasons is that, it, that, that I've had to deal with this so many hundreds of times in the last 42 years. So a couple comes in and uh, um, usually after somebody's discovered the affair and you know, they go, now what do we do? And, and so I let them know. I go, you know, so what, here's what we're going to do. Um, you know, we're going to deal with all the mess and the smoke and the fire and the explosion and clean things up and we'll do that. And it'll take us somewhere between three or six or seven months. And then we're going to start dealing with the situation that made you guys vulnerable to have this happen in the first place. Now, some people who write about affairs would disagree with what I just said. Um, um, statistically, what determines whether somebody has an affair or not is usually opportunity, interestingly. Hmm. Um, that that's number one variable. Somebody has an opportunity to have an affair. Chris Rock said that, you know, guys only as faithful as an opportunities. Well, Chris Rock was onto something <laughs> in that at least statistically that's the case. But, you know, that being said, there's a lot of people that have opportunities that don't go for it. Why not? A lot of people have opportunities to do go for it. How did that happen? The difference between that is what was missing in their um, connection with their partner and with the way that they held the relationship in their mind. Because to have a secret affair, you have to make your partner disappear. If you have kids, you have to make your kids disappear. If the person you're having a secret affair with has a partner and kids, you have to make their partner and kids disappear. You have to make their, your friends disappear and their friends disappear and their family disappear and your family disappear because all those people are injured by your secret affair. Okay, that's an intensely egocentric, narcissistic activity. Now, all of us have narcissistic, egocentric selves, but um, ideally, as we develop, we notice when our egocentric, narcissistic self shows up and don't say yes to it. <laughs> and now, of course, we're genetically programmed to go for it when we're attracted to another person, and, and that accelerates quite quickly. 
Um, and a lot of it, so if we don't have a really solid understanding of what we're about in the world, a solid understanding about what we're committed to in our relationship, a solid sense of keeping the other people in my life present, even when they're not in the room with me, then I'm likely to surrender to those evolutionary forces when I have an opportunity and go for the lust or go for the uh, romantic infatuation, um, you know, go for the affair. And so, okay, so people have had it, they've had the injury, and we start working through the mess. And so working through the mess is becoming honest. It's the person completely separating from the lover. It's the, it's the other person asking all the questions they need to ask. It's the other person um, uh, uh, detailing, you know, you know, why the distress that they feel over creating these kinds of injuries. It's reestablishing their lover relationship. Um, it's looking for the aspects of their life that they need to um, honor and reestablish. To the person who was cheated on, it's dealing with the profound unfairness of why am I given all this work and all this mess when I didn't do anything? You know, all of a sudden I was just looking at his phone and there was that letter, I can't wait to get my hands on your body, you know, next week and what's this about and oh my God. Okay. And, you know, part of the message to that person is if you want to stay married to him, let's say it's the woman, then, you, then this is work that you have. It's, it's kind of the same as if you got drunk and went and had a car wreck. You know, you'd have to deal with the car wreck and the injuries and so on, and it was him who got drunk and had the wreck, but you still have to deal with it because you're married to him. She says, well, you know, he decided to have the affair. I said, he sure did. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to stay with him, you have to um, find a way to love him and be attracted to him again, or your relationship will be a miserable relationship. Mm. And so we work on it. Sometimes we do trauma work because if you've had a sexual trauma in the past, boy, is that going to be re-stimulated by a sexual betrayal? Um, and so we have to do that work, and we'll do it. You know, we'll do, we'll do reconsolidation memory work or EMDR if people are wired that way, or you know, whatever the whatever the form of psycho psychotherapy that works best for them. There's a lot of forms of psychotherapy that I practice, and integral psychotherapists do that. You know, we draw from all the traditions because people are different and different traditions speak to different people in different ways. Just like we all have different spiritual practices because different spiritual traditions speak to us differently. So when you're in the process of helping people repair mm -hmm. from like such a, from that rupture of attachment, where does, where does attunement come in? Especially when there's like such deep, hurt that, that they're experiencing she needs so, so you know I'm, I'm talking about the, the, right now um, for people under 40 equal numbers of men and women cheat and this is a result of women having equal and more education and, and equal representation in the workforce um, at least most people most anthropologists like Helen Fisher agree with this um, uh uh, and, you know, as I said, Susan Johnson's emotionally focused therapy is focused on, you know, dealing with safety uh, issues and, you know, you feel really unsafe. Um, and so the person has to anchor themselves in what do I want? You know, do I want to have a good marriage? If I want to have a good marriage, then I have to find a way through my trauma. I have to find a way back to love. And I have to identify, say it's the woman, I have to identify him as a trustable person when he's proven himself not to be. So the challenge to him is to commit himself to have a passionate commitment to his own development as a man. Mm 
to find what was stunted and to grow it. And he needs to do that in relationship with her and publicly in her presence. Um, and, you know, sometimes that leads into his sexual traumas. Sometimes it just leads into his confusion about commitment. Sometimes it leads into drug and alcohol issues because, of course, we become disinhibited when we're intoxicated. The combination of disinhibition and, and opportunity is a bad combination. Sometimes it leads into feelings of entitlement that somebody might have. Um, it can lead into a lot of different directions. He needs to discover what those vulnerabilities are and he needs to grow and become more mature and more present. Now, if, if, it's, if it's her that has cheated, then you know, he needs to be able to experience her erotic light and be able to work through the trauma of she gave that light to another guy. And you know, sometimes that involves traumatic images, re-experiencing, I can't get, to get it out of my mind, him and her you know, in bed together. And so we have to work with those images and have people integrate them. And again, that's doing trauma work. Um, um, there's a variety of forms of trauma work. And you know, like I said, you choose the one that works best for the person. So that, they, so that they can get back, not just to neutral, so that they can get back to a sense that they have a growing intimacy with each other and feel a sense of responsibility for that. And sometimes that takes a short period of time. Sometimes it takes a long period of time. It takes as long as it takes. Um, so what I'm hearing you say, and I, I like this, if this is what you're actually saying, is that, um, that part of being trustworthy, like that, so there's, there's the work that you do if you're the one who's been traumatized by that experience. That's mm -hmm. about committing to getting past your trauma and committing to getting back to love and back to growth in the relationship. Yes. And if you're the one who has, has been the offender, let's say, mm -hmm. then the way that you can get back to being trustworthy is by actually showing your commitment, not just to never doing that again, but to actually examining your, the own roots of that behavior in, in yourself and, and growing publicly in front of your partner. Absolutely. And yeah, never doing that again is just the start. You know, a lot of, you get this, um, um, women tend to overestimate, then this is just from, now this is, these are statistics, so everybody's different, but women tend to overestimate the emotional significance of an affair to a guy. You know, women tend to be more distressed about a guy falling in love with another woman. Guys tend to be more distressed about a woman having actual physical sex with another guy. So women will go, well, you know, I, I can't, you know, how can he get, get over her? He must have fallen in love with her. And the guy goes, hey, she's history. You know, the, he has a secret affair. It creates this kind of little island of secret sexuality. He gets busted. He goes, you know, I'm never going to see you again. And a lot of the time, fine, never seeing her again. Um uh, he, and he'll go, well, look, I promised to never have another affair. What's her problem? Why is she not over it yet? And I go, look, <laughs> there, there are some aspects of your personality that fit into this that are not growing. You know, you want her to get back to loving you, and you don't want to do the work of growing that part of your personality. You know, good luck with that. She's not <laughs> going to trust you unless you do that. And so... You know, she's not going to get – and now, yeah, she has to do the work. But, you know, you need to find that part of you that made you vulnerable to that, to, to, to inflicting this incredible pain on her and, your, and this incredible risk to your family. And you need to get deeper in that area. And you're not there yet. 
So th- there it is. I can help you get there, but you know, I'm not going to pretend like you can do it over in one session or two sessions. People can't do that. Right. And that's, I like, you mentioned that in your book that that's true for things like whether or not you're going to have sex with someone outside of the boundaries of your relationship. But it's also true in terms of whether you're deciding that you're going to indulge in your anger or indulge in your sadness and um, versus always being holding your relationship and your participation in it to being after the highest good. What's the highest benefit for everyone? Yeah. And, you know, this is why, you know, it was a hundred reasons to not have a secret affair. It wasn't a hundred reasons to not have an affair. Um, you know, back in the seventies, my wife and I, you know, we were in the seventies. I don't know if anybody who's listening was there, but you know, there was a, at least in progressive society, there was a lot of, of, of sexual weirdness. You know, we were all having sex with our friends and stuff. The thing with Becky and me is we never lied to each other about it. You know, mm. it was always, you know, negotiated. So I don't feel betrayed by those first six or seven years when we were monogamous. You know, I, I don't like thinking about it particularly, but I'm not distressed by it because we there were no betrayals. Yeah. I remember telling my friends in 1981, you know, you guys, I'm monogamous. I just discovered it. You know, maybe it's a character <laughs> flaw. I don't know what the fuck. But, <laughs> but, you know, I'm a monogamous person and that's just the way I'm, I'm going to have to live my life. Okay. Um, the betrayal part of it is what is the injurious part of it. Okay, that that what really hurts, you know. And so betrayal has all kinds of connotations with it. And if you ever were betrayed, as as many of us were when we were small, that's restimulated. Um, and so you don't just so you can't just heal the current betrayal. Now you have to go back and do more healing on the past betrayal. And that's the trauma work that you were talking about with Wendy. Right, right. And and as romantic partners, we're set up. We're, we're set up to betray each other. It's almost like a given. I'm not saying that we're going to have affairs, um, but I'm saying that there's always there are always going to be places where we don't live up to our partner's expectations. So having a vehicle for healing and repairing when that happens and, and acknowledging that that's going to re-stimulate all the times you were betrayed when you were younger, um, I think is really helpful. Absolutely. You know, we're going to hurt each other. You know, love always involves suffering. Always. You fall in love with somebody, you're going to hurt each other. And, you know, you can hurt each other honestly or dishonestly, but you're going to hurt each other. And when you hurt each other, you're either going to repair it or you're not. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you didn't learn how to do it or you don't learn how to do it right or if you have bad habits or whatever. If you don't do it right, it's going to make things worse. And so, you know, these are kind of, this is kind of, the, I call it the brutal physics of relationships. You know, it's kind of independent of what we deserve, independent of worth, independent of circumstance, independent of whether I had a traumatic history or not. You know, you, you either do that stuff or you don't. And if you don't do it, then bad things happen in your relationship. And if you do do it, good things happen. And you both have to do the good things. And that makes modern monogamy very challenging. But it makes it incredibly, incredibly fruitful. It's an incredible uh, container for development and beautiful beyond belief. It's what, it's what really kind of keeps me going, you know, keeps me going looking for the new studies and, and practicing the new techniques and writing the books. Um, uh, you know, the, the capacity of individuals to grow and couples to grow is just magic beyond belief. You know, human beings just take everything and turn it into art. And, we, you know, we can see it with engineering so easily. You can see a skyscraper and go, boy, that skyscraper is a lot more sophisticated than an anthill, isn't it? 
um, it, it really is the, uh, uh, a mark of incredible cultural evolution and personal evolution and cooperation of, of many people. But you look at a good relationship, a great relationship, where people are just really loving each other and are turned on to each other and passionate about each other, and it looks really ordinary. It's just a couple of people walking down the street holding hands. And yet the level of sophistication in that relationship rivals the sophistication that sends people to the moon and stuff. And it's that beautiful and requires that level of, de- of depth of consciousness, that level of surrender to love. Well, I really appreciate your time with us. And I, I like how you said um, it's what keeps you going because I feel like we could keep going on and on. <laughs> There's so much and, and we've already gone much longer than most episodes are. So um, Keith Witt, I hope to have you back on the show to, to talk more. Love um, to. And because there are some juicy nuggets that we just kind of touched on in this conversation. So great for our listeners. We just to let you know, we'll figure that out. And I'll let you know when that's going to be. In the meantime, you can find out more about Keith Witt on his website, which is drkeithwitt.com. And that's D-R Keith, K-E-I-T-H, Witt, W-I-T-T dot com. Uh, you can also, he has several books. We were talking today a lot about The Attuned Family. Um, that's available for free as an electronic version if you register on his website. So um, definitely check that out. He is also offering a free signed copy of the book Integral Mindfulness to one lucky listener. So if you've heard this episode within the first week of its airing, you can download the show guide to the episode or you can text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 and just follow the instructions. And that will qualify you for the giveaway if it's within the first week. And either way, um, texting will also give you instructions on how to get the show guide for this show. And there's been a lot that we've talked about. So I think the show guide will be really helpful for for people. And uh, finally, I just want to mention as well um, that Keith also has an online course called Loving Completely. It's five hours or over five hours of instruction um, to help couples achieve this kind of ongoing expansiveness and passion that we've been talking about. And um, so it's really an amazing course distilled from his wisdom, all the, you can tell he's got all kinds of knowledge distilled from others and from his own work, working with over 55,000 sessions um, with other people. So Keith, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your wisdom today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Neil. And thank you for doing this work. Thank you for putting this out into the world to help people love better. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. 
Take care and see you next time.